Death will come to us all. This is certain. And yet, there seems to be so much stigma, taboo, fear and difficulty surrounding this inevitable part of life. I'm Sultram, and this is What About Death? Everything you wanted to know about death, but were afraid to ask. So thank you very much. Today, my guest is Samuel Johnson. Samuel Johnson is a well-known and very much loved Australian actor. He's a Gold Logie winner. Uh, he is a past Victorian Australian of the Year. I believe he is a skilled unicycle rider. <laughs> and he is a staunch advocate for the research, treatment and vanquishment of cancer. So thank you so much, uh, Samuel, for joining me today. The pleasure is mine, Saul Trim, and, um, and thanks for your time. Okay, so uh, the very first question that I ask uh, all of my guests is, what's your first recollection or memory or first experience of death? Um, so there's, there's kind of two answers I think to this, um, I became aware when I was very young and I'm not sure how that my mother was dead. I don't know who told me. Uh, I don't know how much I was told, but I don't ever remember not knowing that. So from my earliest recollection, I, I just, um, I knew that my mum was dead. I, I didn't know how, mm. I didn't know, I didn't know when. Um, I didn't. I, I, I didn't ask many questions. Um, I was afraid to upset my father, and um, and I suppose. So I suppose my first recollection of death is very vague uh, and very early. I, you know, obviously you have to become a bit older to wrap your head around such things. My earliest clear recollection of death is when I would have been about. Oh look, let's say let's say um, early teens. Um, I was um, lucky enough to be living above my dad's secondhand bookshop near a beach, and um, and one of his customers died, and um, and and I got his dog, the customer's dog, because um, oh, I got along quite well with that customer and 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 with the dog. I used to I used to walk the dog, so um, I I found him dead. He was a very large, obese man. The doctor was telling him to stay off the fatty foods, but he couldn't give them up. He loved his fried breakfasts. Mm. And um, and uh, one day I went, went over to walk the dog and uh, saw through the window that he'd um, that he was well and truly dead. Mm. Um, so I was the one to call the police on that one. And and uh, I, I didn't go into the house, but I, so I suppose I saw him from about six metres away. He was facing away from me. And so I, see, I saw him through a window. And then no less than a week later, after I'd adopted that dog, I was um, um, I was walking the dog along our usual route along the beach. And I, I saw a helicopter crash in front of me. Um, and it was literally, a, a, I, I, don't, I don't think I'd even been to the funeral of the, um, of the larger guy that had died, the, the big, the big customer. It was, it was almost, um, that they almost happened concurrently. And, um, about a kilometer ahead, I watched a helicopter flying low over the shore. So, um, just, uh, its engine exploded or something. It just ended up, a lot of smoke came out and it fell into the shallows of the water. 
Um, by the time I um, by the time I ran to the helicopter, it would have been a, a couple of k's away from me. By the time it had by the time it had crashed, by the time I arrived there, I would uh, some other other people had already gone in the shallows to rescue the pilot, and he was laying dead on the beach. So I've got two clear memories of death. Uh, when I was about 14 and very vague memories of death from when I was young and found out that my mother had um, had gone somehow. Both of those incidents that you can recall, I mean, they're quite, for a young person, they're actually quite uh, traumatic, you know, quite a, a shocking, you know, because we're not so exposed to death. So to see, you know, two people die like that, wow. <laughs> well, part, well, part of the reason, Sultram, that I wanted, uh, Sultram, that I wanted to um, speak with you, um, is because we don't talk about it. No, indeed. Uh, and 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 I and, and which is why I commend you um, uh, for your work, and 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 is why I'm so grateful to be on the show having this conversation with you, mm. because um, death is not ha- um, handled this way in other cultures. Um, in Australia, there's a there's a you know I'm look I don't know this is all conjecture. It's just my opinion. Mm. I don't know I don't know anything going, but um, but but it feels to me at least. That, um, that that there's a culture of denialism around death in Australia, and mm-hmm. um, and and that we don't talk about it much or deal with it. You know, I mean, I, I was too scared to talk to my dad about my own mother's death. Mm-hmm. Uh, I never, I, and he died, and I'd never spoken to him really about her. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it wasn't even a conversation we had in adulthood. Yeah. Um, you know, and so there's this. Um, Yes, I think I think it's a worrying. I think it's a worrying kind of a trend because we're we're, we're thrust into this kind of forever young mentality, um, you know, through the media and through this denialism of death that we see in our culture, um, and, and and I don't see very many people uh, being well prepared, um, you, you know, for the grim inevitable eventuality. I feel like we're walking people off the plank. And it's, I read a quote the other day, again, I can't remember who said it, but um, death is not, it was a Japanese person. Um, uh, death is not the opposite of life. Death is part of life. Why, why, why don't we talk about it? Sultram? <laughs> I want your view on that. <laughs> well, I mean, I mean you're, you're further along the, the, the kind of talking about grief path. Grief path. I mean, I certainly have a view, and perhaps at some point I'm, I'm, I may allow myself to explore that through this podcast. But what no, I, I would argue that you must. We need to know you <laughs> and what you think. But what I'm interested in is how do you feel those experiences, and in fact, all of the experiences that you've had, you know, throughout your life uh, um, around dying, illness, death, uh, how well, has that influenced your perspective? Well, I, you know, this this might sound a little um, uh, a little wonky, but I've been so enriched by it. You know, I'll be honest, but um, for that's what conversations should be. When someone dies, I feel relief for myself. Um, um, I feel I feel honoured to be able to see another person through. Mm. Uh, so it's a mixture of guilt because I feel relieved that I'm still alive. Uh, relief that it wasn't me that died. Uh, uh, of course, all of the typical uh, grief and sadness. 
um, but also through that, an enriching process, a chance, an opportunity to build to build your own character um, and to make yourself a richer person, a better person based on the learnings from the person you've lost. I don't like the word legacy. Um, it, but losing a loved one who you knew intimately, who taught you things, who mentored you, who loved you, who showed you how to love, how to behave, how to be, these people around us that we lose, that we're close to, have taught us some of the most special things that we need to know in life in order to acquit ourselves properly. Um, so I feel, and I don't mean to sound harsh, that it's a little selfish to feel too sorry for yourself. Mm. Um, or too sad when, uh, although sadness is of course permitted, um, when when someone passes, because I feel very strongly that you should not rue or lament what 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 you will miss in the future from them, rather celebrate, cherish, and and adopt. Uh, the best parts of them that you that you were lucky enough to get when they were living. My sister died of breast cancer as a young mum. I will never say she died too young. She got she got given forty years. I got given a sister for forty years. Yes. And 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 I will never be entitled enough to suggest that I should have had eighty. Um, I mean, how how how. It it offends every sensibility of mine um, because it's a typical way to think, and I've thought that way myself, of course. Um, but you know, uh, let's call it the "woe be me" kind of thing. Um, you're not grieving for them; you're grieving for yourself, feeling sorry for yourself because you missed out because you wanted more good times. Oh, poor you! How about the good times you got with them? And and, and if you're going to grieve, why don't you grieve what they're going to miss out on? Yeah. You know, I mean, these are people who die horridly at times. Um, you know, my partner of suicide, um, you know, but dying painfully, you know, hanging herself with my dog's choker chain in our bedroom, mm. no doubt regretting it. Um, you know, my sister dying in extreme pain of, of cancer. How arrogant it would be of me to deny their pain and to dwell in my own. Um, so I think you're starting to get a sense of why I was so looking forward to chatting to you. <laughs> it is interesting, though, isn't it? Because we are so conditioned to be avoidant, you know, to to yes. see it as a something that's negative, something to be avoided, something uh, that painful, it, painful. You know, we look at death from our perspective and that tends to be how we're conditioned to see it. So what sort of things would you like to see change generally? Well, I can only do what I can do. Mm. And, and, and what I will try to do is to, to, to mourn them, not my loss. Yes. Uh, to grieve them and not um, to feel sad for myself. Because ultimately, with, uh, with with the pain of death comes the gift of life. And to um, uh, look, having said that, having said that, this is all very good theoretically. Um, um, I I have to constantly remind myself. Um, look, I, I've I've done well with all of the deaths in my life, except for one of them. Mm. Um, my um, my partner um, uh, killed herself the night that we broke up. 
um, in um, 2006. Mm-hmm. Uh, to, um, and she had a song on repeat um, uh, that played 183 times. Oh, before before the police press stopped the next morning when they found her. Um, but the lyrics to the song were hopelessly, I'll love you endlessly. Hopelessly, I'll give you everything, but I won't give you up. Mm. And, um, and I was the last to see her. Um, and so, you know, fairly heavily implicated in that one. Mm. Um, th- thankfully, there was no argument. And, you know, the last I saw of her, I kissed her on the forehead. And my last three words to her, thankfully, were I love you. Mm-hmm. And um, um, so, you know, I had my solaces within that. But um, she was a, she was a young girl with um, um, such a great life ahead of her. And um, and and so, when it comes to anyone who's felt sad and painful uh, about a death, please don't think I'm being insensitive because I feel incredible amounts of. Um, of, of sadness and grief over the loss of Lainey. Yeah. Um, and I would argue it's been 16 years since she died. Um, she'd be 35, 36 now. But uh, I'd argue that in that case, the sadness for me grows. And and so there's, there's a few things I'd like to dispel. Um, at least, you know, I'm not talking society or culturally. I'm only talking personally. Um, um, firstly, I, I've learned in my case, in my life, that, that time doesn't heal all wounds. And, and I think we've got to stop. I, I, I'm not going to say that anymore. And I would love other people not to say that, but nor would I suggest that I'm intelligent enough to, you know, to suggest that they should change the way they talk. In, in the case of losing Lainey, I've found that, that that grief has grown more profound and deeper with time. Um, and I mean, I'm, I'm much more incredibly sadder about it now than I was. Um, and I'm talking about not sadness for her. I'm talking about that feeling sorry for yourself, sadness. You know, there's those two kinds. So I have to, so I have to, I have to constantly remind myself to be sad for her. And in doing so, um, I've, I've, I've started to realise just how much she's, she's, she's missed out on. Um, and, and then, of course, there's the feelings of sadness for myself um, about how much I may have missed out on as well. So, so they compound to, to create, an, um, a, you know, a, a total and, and, and complete grief for me um, that, I, that, I, that I wrangle with every day. And so I, so, so I suppose through my experiences, my, my number one thing is grief for them, not for yourself. And um, and and time doesn't heal all wounds. Um, 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 it, you can get you can get better at dealing with it over over time. But um, we cannot put a neat little bow on this stuff. We do not get closure. Can we stop saying that? Mm. I mean, you know, I mean, closure. I mean, we don't get closure until we die. Mm. Um, you know, it's 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 you know. I mean, if I ever get closure on any of my previous relationships or, or or any of the people that have died in my life, then 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 I'm part of the denialistic culture which I stand against. It's an interesting perspective because um, you know I think part of the issue is around this the tension between the certainty and uncertainty of death and the unpredictability. Uh, it's not even just uncertainty, you know, it's an unpredictability that occurs around life and death. You know, we know that death is certain. We all know that inter- intellectually because we see it all around us all of the time. You know, we hear about it. It's on film. It's in radio. It's in our lives. So how have you, how has that tension 
I guess, influenced your journey, particularly with the the Love Your Sister charity? Oh, the uncertainty uh, which pervades the life of each cancer patient in this country and their families is crippling, debilitating and causes many mental health dramas and can lead to all kinds of problems. Um, The divorce rate amongst families with cancer patients is much higher than the average. Mm -hmm. Uh, Instances of mental health around the uncertainty of cancer is much higher. (laughs) A lot of people, a lot of people struggle more mentally than they do with the physical disease itself. I mean, it's, um, cancer is um, a classic example of what you're talking about. I mean, how do you deal with that uncertainty? Um, You can't feed it, um, just like you can't feed jealousy, just like you can't feed vengeance, just like you can't feed any of these negative emotions that that, that calcify and toxify and and end up crippling you. We have to have a disciplined mentality um, when it comes to dealing with uncertainty. We have to uh, make a decision to control it insofar as we can yeah, uh, we do that through acceptance. Once we can accept the uncertain nature of life, once we can accept that life is suffering, we can move on and uh, be less be less kidnapped by the notion. So I think having a healthy understanding and awareness of our powerlessness and the uncertainty of life itself, whether it be in cancer diagnosis or the mental health of a loved one or whatever, I think uh, I think I think a lot of it's about letting go. We can't control a lot of things. You know, we're also brought up to think that, you know, that, that, <laughs> that our agency and our, uh, and our will, our free will can, you know, do just about anything. But there are, there are universal um, happenings that are beyond our reach. Um, you know, there's, there's things we can't control, like, you know, when we die how uncertain everything is but we can control how we respond to that uncertainty Uh, you know originally i used to try and create a bubble where the you know where i'd be safe (laughs) you know um uh, from from the vicissitudes of life but Mm -hmm. you can't you cannot shield yourself from it so given that you so given that you can't shield yourself from these necessities of life um, I feel it's our obligation uh, to understand them well and live with them well and respond to them well. So um, um, I'm incredibly scared of death I'm, um, and, uh, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm grieving a lot and I'm feeling a lot of pain and I've got a lot of uncertainty in my life. And the way I deal with that is I alchemize it, I convert it into a lust for today because I can control certain so I have a certain limited range of control within my life. So I focus on that stuff. Um, if I can control how well I am today um, or, 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 you know, if I can control uh, my mindset today uh, and if I can make 100 positive decisions today, um, then I'll be ready to die in my sleep. So it sounds like you're, you know, like a self-awareness of what's going on in your mind, what your emotions are, and then that you are not powerless in how you deal with those and address those. Self-awareness and then and then strict self-regulation. Okay. You know, it's one thing to – my dad used to say, Dad, he'd say, Sam, you're very good at identifying a problem, but when it comes to doing anything about it, you suck. 
Um, and um, and uh, Mike, you know, it's it. I, you know, I have to work really hard every day to act on these awarenesses, and it's it's a conscious effort every day. And and that's how I keep the demons at bay, uh, and that's how I uh, that's how I stand every day, refusing to fall victim to the traumas in my life. And it sounds like uh, part of the acceptance then is accepting that you need to be disciplined, you need to have perseverance, you know, you need to, in order to be able to, you know, to continue the journey and do the work and survive another day, that, yeah, that's part of the self-responsibility. You have to actively work against these evil forces like pain and sadness and feeling overwhelmed and uncertain and fearful. Uh, about the unpredictability of everything. All of these are powerful forces that can absolutely uh, uh, debilitate you. They can debilitate you, and they've de- they're, they're, de- they're debilitating people as we speak. And 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 these very factors have debilitated me in the past. Mm. I haven't been on my feet my whole life. I've been on my knees for most of it. Mm. Um, and um, and as I've been able to so kind of slowly, you know, survive and learn. And um, and 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 make lots of mistakes, and then and then reapply myself. Um, you know, slowly I've gotten to a point where it's just not all too much anymore. Mm-hmm. Even though, of course, it's all too much. I mean, life is um, life is um, such a savage affair. I mean, I think yes, I think that's the case for everyone. It just manifests differently. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I mean, typically with men, we would get wasted and we'd mask it um, yeah. by, you know, um, I'm, I, you know, my background is uh, I was a poly user, which is what my therapist called me. Um, you know, poly meaning many, of course. So I was, I was using everything. I, I was, I was, I was drinking and doing drugs and. Um, and that's a typical male response to, to dealing with grief in our cult, in our culture. And so, yeah, I had to, I had to, I had to, I had to so many, so many bad decisions to get to the point where I, I realised that I was in a position to, to continue, you know, and to uphold Lainey's best parts and my dad's best parts and my sister's best parts and mm. um, my mum's best parts and you know, and and so now I don't really see myself as myself. I don't really have an identity to speak of. I, I see myself as a, um, I, I see myself as just an accumulation of the best bits of the people that I've loved and lost, because mm-hmm. because I've I've literally integrated that awareness, you know, because it's it's what you know. My dad was a very graceful man, and um and I was a very very uncouth. He used to call me gauche. Um, he he was a refined. Um, graceful man, and I've always, I've always been too much. I was always wired that way, and I just didn't have a lot of grace, and 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 I still don't now. But compared to where I was, I've got loads, and 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 you know, every now and then I find a moment, um, I'll behave in a certain way, and and someone will accuse me of being graceful. They'll say that was really graceful, and and I'm thinking, gosh, the most ungraceful boy in the world has managed to find moments of grace. Now, now that's me upholding my dad's best bit. He's been dead for years. And so really I don't see myself as myself. I see myself as, 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 a, as a little jigsaw piece of all my loved ones because I've, I've, I've kind of ripped off all their good bits. But that's brilliant, isn't it, to be able to internalise, to be able to first of all identify the qualities, you know, these qualities that you... <laughs> they were qualities I didn't have, I'll tell you that much. 
But to be able to recognize them, you know, and then embody them and then apply them as much as you can. I mean, some days I'm sure it still sucks from time to time, but, you know, to be able to see them and embody them and do them and internalize them so that then they nourish you. I mean, that's amazing. And you have to habitualize it. You know, we are, our brains run on neurological habit loops, you know, and um, and that involves a lot of repetition and failure. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've made the wrong decisions. Yeah. I can't tell you how many times I've, I've reverted back to a, a really counterproductive path or a mentality. You know, I don't want people to think that I've, um, you know, that, that this hasn't done been done at an incredible cost. I've made many mistakes and there's been many days where I haven't made the right choices. Sure. Um, so so it's, a, it's a bumpy old road, isn't it, Sultram? You're, you're suggesting you're human. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm proving that I'm, I'm proving that it's that it's really, um, it's really grey, um, yeah. and and um, and it's really bumpy. And there's and I don't want to peddle some redemptive story. I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm not gonna. I don't want to pretend that I've found the perfect way to deal with my grief and pain. I'm still making poor decisions. Um, and I am by and large living really well and really healthily. And I still make mistakes uh, um, despite all of all, using all of my discipline and all of my nous and all of my all of all, all of all of the skills that I can muster so what you know whilst I whilst I'm well at the moment I don't take that for granted either I mean it's it look at the end of the day I couldn't use Laney as an excuse to fail mm. you know uh, and that's what I was doing you know I, 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 I lost I lost I lost a love, and, and 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 that was giving me an excuse to fail, and I and I was using it as an excuse to fail, and um and it was actually um a a wonderful woman you may have heard of her, um she's a public figure um of sorts her name's Kate Langbrook, mm-hmm. and um and and I saw her about a year after my girlfriend passed. And I said, oh, I'm not doing great, to be honest. Yeah. Um, I'm, 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 I'm making some poor decisions. Um, and she looked at me and said, Sam, don't you blame her? And it was the sentence I needed to hear. Yeah. Uh, from that moment on, I just needed one friend to not just not tell me the time he would heal all wounds. Yeah. <laughs> I needed a friend to say, Oi, you were messy before that. Don't yeah. you blame? Don't you blame her for your problems? Yeah. And 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 off to therapy I went, <laughs> and yeah. um, you know, and and many many years later I'm 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 in in basic control of myself. And it does reinforce the um, you know, that we have to take responsibility as individuals for our happiness, you know, and for our mistakes. You know, we can't. Uh, keep blaming and uh, yes, we do, Sultram. But it's important. Whilst we have to recognise our mistakes, it's it you know it becomes a bit heavy if we bear them. You know, I mean, recognising our mistakes and recognising the fact that we do repeat them. This mm. is an, and this is probably another falsehood. I'd say is that you know you know I, a lot of people like to think they don't make the same mistake twice. Um, that's bollocks. We we I, we make we we repeat our mistakes a lot because neurologically we're wired to. So that that's probably another thing worth um, worth mentioning is is that not only do you have to accept that you that you do not only have I had to accept that I, I've repeated my mistakes, but I also have to not carry my mistakes with me, or I'll never recover. So so putting the whip away, this is a fascinating one, Sultram, because so many people talk it and they don't actually do it. Um, how many people do you know? For me, it's nearly all of them. People who who just haven't yet forgiven themselves. 
Yeah. Uh, sure. People who are just so hard on themselves and who think that they're not enough, and 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 they and they and, and they're blaming. What they're doing is they're carrying their mistakes with them. You know, they're, they're walking around thinking, Jesus, I'm making more mistakes than anyone, and yeah. it feels like that because they've got more in their backpack than 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 the, the than the people who throw their mistakes away. Now you can't just make your mistake and throw it away. You've got to make your mistake, try and learn from it uh, before before deciding not to punish yourself further for it because you'll only make things worse. Mm. So, so, so your mistakes have to be handled in a kind of nuanced way, don't they? You know, um, and, and I would argue that, um, you know, I had to unicycle 16,000 kilometres across 364 days before I forgave myself and, 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 and I have put the whip away and life's been a lot better since and... And I've told people I know who punish themselves unduly to put the whip away, and yeah. I can't seem to get them to put the whip away. And often I, I often I wonder whether whether you have to unicycle sixteen thousand k's to eventually put one away or not. Do you know what I mean? Like, what yeah. what what do people who have managed to put the whip away? What have they done? Because to me, I had to spend a year on a pole. You know, I had to do something really drastic before I could kind of go. You know what, Sam? You 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 mean well, and you try hard. Stop, stop, stop telling yourself you're horrible. You know. Yeah, I think it's really important. I mean, that's an expression that I use a lot as well. You know, we've got to put the whip away, and and from my own experience, that's what I had to learn. Also, I was how did you learn it? Great. Look, I um, I think really I just learned to accept that I made many mistakes and many bad decisions, but what to do? You know, once they're done, you can't change them. And it's and so at some point you've just got to say, well, you know what, I can't change what happened a, mo- a moment ago, but what I can do is try and be better, you know, try and be kinder, try and be more compassionate, try and be more loving, try and be more content, wasn't I? Well, we're so simpatico. I mean, we can control our response, but we can't control the mistake. So um, oh, I mean, yeah. I, I, we are singing from the same hymn book. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I couldn't agree with you more. That's um, that's that's the basic methodology that I've used myself. Well, unfortunately, we're going to have to um, to wrap it up. Uh, Samuel, so uh, I did, however, before we go, I did want you to just uh, talk a little bit about Love Your Sister because I know um, this is a, a very strong commitment of yours and that you are a very staunch advocate for research and treatment and, and the vanquishment of cancer. So just uh, tell us what, what it's about and what you're hoping to achieve. All right. Well, rather than rabbing on about my charity and try and seek donations and all that kind of rubbish, I'd ra- I'd rather use this opportunity to talk about something very important that's not that's that's, that's not known very much. Have you heard of personalised treatment? Not specifically, no. Yeah, nine out of ten oncologists haven't either, so don't feel bad. Um, um, so, so the way we treat cancer these days is with a trial and error method. Um, uh, my sister is the perfect case in point. She, um, she, she was put on uh, a medicine, the medicine most likely to work statistically. Uh, it takes three months to determine the efficacy of a particular line of treatment. Three months of filling a body full of medicines before we can tell whether they're working or not. Um, so it's this trial and error process. My, my fist is, uh, they, if, if, if it doesn't work, they call it a false line of treatment, which I think is a rather innocuous term for it. Mm-hmm. Um, so my sister's first line of treatment failed. Her second line of treatment failed. Her third line of treatment failed. Uh, and by the time we found the right treatment, a year had passed. 
and on the fourth line of treatment, we found the right drug, but it was too late because the cancer had proliferated. I found out that that uh, this didn't need to happen, <laughs> and uh, and that uh, she could have been put on the right drug first time with existing technologies. So it's called personalised treatment. What we do is basically we take a tissue sample from the cancer as soon as it's diagnosed, and we test it genetically to see to see which medicine's going to respond to that particular tumour most effectively. So we have the technology now to put every cancer patient on the right drug first time every time. But we are still adopting this trial and error method, which is very wasteful, costing lives and making certain companies a lot of money. The case is closed on it. It's the future of medicine. Uh, It's genomic based. It's how we're going to treat every disease, not just cancer. And the whole world's moving towards it except for us. And we're no longer offering world's best treatments. And um, in the Netherlands, where they've trialed personalised treatments, they saved $93 million in medicines in the first quarter. So it's proving to actually be cheaper than the current methods as well. I would just like to take this opportunity to urge anybody listening that either has cancer, is awaiting a test result, or has a friend that is awaiting a test result or experiencing cancer currently, please, please talk to your oncologist about a personalised treatment plan. Uh, and and it can really streamline that treatment process for you. You're not going to hear about it a lot, but I'm telling you now uh, that it is on offer in the major centres. You will have to pay for it. It's only going to the rich. I'm trying to ensure that it's that it's offered for all patients. Mm. But, it, but I, I, I just need anybody who's listening, who's who knows someone experiencing cancer, um, to urge the person with cancer to talk to their oncologist about a personalised treatment plan. That will encourage their tissue to be taken and for it to be tested and for more oncologists to be aware of this. This is the most powerful thing we can do at this point. Behind the scenes, of course, I'm lobbying very hard and you'll be hearing a lot about it uh, in, the, in the coming years and months, uh, months and years. Mm, okay, interesting. Well, no, I hadn't heard about that. So hopefully it will become a treatment that is generic rather than uh, for um, only a certain group. Exactly. We're doing all the costings now. I'm taking it to Parliament and um, it will happen and I consider it my job to accelerate our progress towards it. Mm, good for you. Thank oh, you. Look, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk with you, Samuel. I really appreciate your time. I wish we had more time. I could listen to you uh, for much longer than we've been able to, but perhaps we'll have another conversation again in the future if you if you have some time. Um, I hope to be asked back and I'd be back keenly and I really support your work and I uh, commend you on what you do. All right. Uh, so thank you very, very much and uh, we look forward hopefully to talking to you again. Thank you, Sultram. Please join me next time on What About Death when I speak with Alana Cresswell from Donate Life Queensland and Philippa Lazenby from the Queensland Tissue Bank as they share their understanding and experience of the value of death. I'm Sultram and this is What About Death, an initiative of karuna.org. Thank you for listening to What About Death podcast, brought to you by karuna.org.au. 
If you liked this episode, be sure to follow, subscribe and give us a star rating, hopefully five stars. We'll be posting new episodes every two weeks, so there's more to look forward to.